Our lesson of the day is from Colossians chapter 1. I will read beginning in verse 15. Here again, God's Word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things in himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for you made all things through him. Now you have reconciled all things through him. May we come to believe in him even more firmly and deeply this day, that we might serve him more faithfully each day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Why on earth are you here? I don't necessarily mean why on earth are you at church today, but why on earth are you on earth? Why are you here? Have you ever wondered that? What does God want us to do with our lives? Especially as Christians, once we're saved, why does God leave us on this earth? Is it just to do evangelism or is there something more to life? What is the meaning of life? Is it just to get as many other souls saved as possible? Or is there something more, something that includes that but goes beyond that? Think about the things we spend most of our time doing and the way we invest our time. Does it really reflect our priorities, what we would say is most important? We've spent most of our time working a job or changing diapers and looking after kids or perhaps doing yard work paying bills, all things that seem very mundane, what does it all mean? Does it mean anything? Does it have any lasting significance? Do you sometimes feel guilty for not having spent more time doing things that are truly spiritual? And I put that in square uh, scare quotes, but things that are truly spiritual, like evangelizing the lost or going on mission trips. What what can we do that has eternal significance? Is evangelism the only thing we can do that has eternal significance? Again, I ask, why are we here? What is the meaning of our lives? Well, Paul's hymn in Colossians 1, and I want to stress this is a hymn. Uh, it's, it's poetic. Uh, Paul's hymn in Colossians 1 shows us the meaning of life. It shows us the meaning of history. It shows us the eternal significance of what we do in history because it shows us Christ. It shows us Christ who is the center of history and who gives history eternal value. In Christ, creation and redemption are united. In Christ, history finds its eternal significance. In Christ, our bodies, our works, our culture are all redeemed. Paul describes Christ as the image of the invisible God. 
Christ came to reveal God to us. And he can reveal God to us because he is God. But of course, that image of God, language, it's also a term used for humanity. Way back in Genesis 1, it's how humanity is defined. We are the image of God. So Christ is not only God, he's man. He's God and man. He is the God-man. Right off the bat, we see Paul giving us this Christology, the incarnation. Why did Christ come? He came to make man great again. That's really his campaign, to make humanity great again. In fact, to make humanity greater than it ever has been, more glorious than it ever was before, even before the fall. Christ came to rule over creation and fulfill the original creation mandate. He's a new Adam who has come to subdue and and, and fill the earth. With those who bear now, you could say, not just God's image, but Christ's image, his own image. Paul says he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, this is interesting because it certainly links Christ with wisdom. Back in Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom is the firstborn of God before all creation. So Paul's connecting here Christ with wisdom. But then Paul explains what he means by firstborn. He is the firstborn over creation. Paul explains this in terms of Christ's role in the act of creation. Christ was there, present and active in Genesis 1. And so Paul goes on to say, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, including thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. And whether we think of these thrones, dominions, and principalities as visible human rulers, like our governments, our civil authorities, or angelic beings, whether good angels or fallen angels who influence human affairs and who have a kind of authority over humanity. However we view that, the point is Christ has created all of these powers. Christ oversees and rules over all of these powers. In other words, Christ was not just there in Genesis 1 in creation. He is involved in all of history. He is the agent of God's creation and of God's providence. Paul says all things were made through him, for him, and by him. You know, we like to say the whole Bible's about Jesus, and that's true, but we also need to say the whole universe is about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. He is the sun, say the S-U-N, around which the whole cosmos revolves. He's the center of it all. Paul says he's before all things, and in him all things consist. He gives order and structure to the cosmos. All of creation's goodness and truth and beauty come from Him. He keeps creation together. He holds it together. He keeps creation from slipping into chaos or even into nothingness. He is supreme, Paul is showing us. He is the supreme ruler and sustainer of all things. And so he's before creation, both in the sense of pre-existing the creation, but also in the sense of being over creation as its ruler. He's before creation both in time and rank. And again, Paul says he holds creation together. In him all things consist. It's his power, his love, his rule that all serve to maintain the created order. He's the one who keeps the atoms together. He oversees all of history. The rising and falling of of kingdoms are in His hands. The totality of creation and history are under His Lordship. Paul could not hype up Jesus any more than he's doing here. But that's only half the hymn. That's really only the first half of it. 
Verse 18 shifts from creation to new creation. Now, Paul's already hinted at Christ's role in a new creation already, indicating in a sense he's even a new Adam. But there's a definite shift when you come to verse 18 from Christ's great act of creation to his even greater act of recreation. From Christ creating man to Christ becoming man. And what he does now as the incarnate one, as God incarnate. So verse 18 describes him as the head of a new humanity. Not just ruling over the old humanity, but now the founder of a new humanity. The church. He is the beginning of a new world, a new heaven and a new earth. He's bringing heaven and earth together. And his church is the sign of this. He's going to rule over heaven and earth now as a man. Paul says he is the firstborn from the dead. That's the way this hymn describes his resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead. And, of course, that means there will be others who will follow him in this victory. But he is the first to have defeated death. The firstborn from the dead. Others will share. If he's the firstborn, others must follow. But he's the first. Up until Christ, death was undefeated. But now death has been beaten. Death has been defeated because Christ is risen. As the resurrected one, he is preeminent. He is Lord over all. Again, he is a new Adam with dominion over all. And I think this helps us see what's going on here. This new creation he's forming, is the old creation renovated and restored. The old creation with the curse removed and with blessing put in its place. Even as Christ was the agent of the first creation, He is the agent of the recreation, the remaking of all things. The creation made through Christ and by Christ had come to be alienated from its Maker because of sin and the curse of death. The powers that Christ created in the beginning turned to evil. But now the powers Christ created have been conquered. Verse 19 harkens back to the opening of the hymn. And in fact, it's interesting how the two sections of the the poem, the hymn, parallel one another. So here the hymn says, The Father was pleased that in Christ all the fullness, that is the fullness of deity, should dwell. Again, pointing us to His incarnation. He is the eternal Son of God who is now incarnate as the human Son of God. The Father has given the fullness of deity to Him. So verse 20, by Him, again, by the One who has made all things, by Him all things have been reconciled. The Creator is now the Reconciler. All things have been reconciled, whether things on earth or in heaven. He's made peace through the blood of His cross. The cross, of course, is stuck right there at the center of this, just like the resurrection is right there at the center of this hymn. Don't miss the allness and the oneness of this hymn. All things are being made one in Christ. He's gathering up all things into Himself. All things are being redeemed in Him. He's summing all things up in Himself. Gathering up all of creation into His new creation. And so now through His death and resurrection, being firstborn from the dead and having made peace by the blood of His Christ, now we can see what He's done. He's brought about reconciliation and restoration and renewal to the creation. God's design for the creation, the blueprint that was laid out in Genesis 1 for creation and humanity, which had been threatened by sin, will still come 
to pass. It will come to fruition and fulfillment in Christ because of Christ's death and resurrection. Christ the Creator has now redeemed the creation. Christ the Creator has redeemed His creation from the curse of sin and death. Apart from the resurrection, there's no such hope. But because Christ has died and because Christ is now risen, we have this hope. It's interesting to connect Colossians 1 with 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's famous passage on the resurrection there. Paul makes it very clear, without the resurrection, all is in vain. Without the resurrection, there is no hope, there is no meaning, there is no purpose. If Christ is not raised, all is lost. We are still in our sins and we are without hope. The resurrection ties together the old creation and the new. It's the bridge from the old world, now cursed under sin, and the new world, that old world transformed and renovated and glorified. You know, there are some who think that the Christian faith can survive intact even without a bodily resurrection. I think this is a denial of the Christian faith, but there are many who claim to be Christians and say we don't need the resurrection. Uh, there was a, an interview just a few weeks ago, just right before Easter uh, was published, an interview with uh, Serene Jones, who is the president of Union Theological Seminary. And in her interview, she said this. She was asked about uh, the physical resurrection of Jesus, and this is what she said. She said, for me, the message of Easter is that love is stronger than life or death. That's a much more awesome claim than that they put Jesus in the tomb, and three days later, he wasn't there. For Christians for whom the physical resurrection becomes a sort of obsession, that seems to me to be a pretty wobbly faith. What if tomorrow someone found the body of Jesus still in the tomb? Would that then mean that Christianity was a lie? No faith is stronger than that. Well, actually, she's wrong. If they found the body of Jesus in the tomb, it would mean it's all a lie and there would be no point in being a Christian. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. It's not surprising that Serene Jones, who has a dead faith, will pretty soon have a dead seminary too. Uh, there's just no reason to be a part of a Christian faith that doesn't have a resurrection. Why bother with a Christian faith if Christ is dead? And this is what you see. Anytime the resurrection is denied by a church, by a Christian organization or institution, that institution or organization dies. Because if you have a dead Christ, you've got a dead faith. You're not going to have any kind of life there. Resurrection is not just a metaphor. It's a reality. You know, Serene Jones wants to say, oh, Easter means God's love is stronger than death. But God's love is only stronger than death if death is actually defeated. We know God's love is stronger than death because he actually reversed death. It's not an obsession with the empty tomb in some kind of unhealthy way like she seems to suggest. It's an obsession with the resurrection because this is everything. Everything depends on this. Jesus rose bodily from the grave. And that has implications for everything. Implications for us and for the whole of creation. This is how G.K. Chesterton put it. So one fact that sticks out like a spike as huge as the Matterhorn is the fact that the Christianity which created Christendom did definitely declare that its religious founder, unlike other religious founders, had risen materially from the dead. And he goes on and compares Jesus to other religious leaders like Confucius and Muhammad and Buddha 
none of them ever claimed to come back from the dead. None of their followers claimed that for them. So, for example, nobody ever said that Confucius rose from the dead, and nobody would have been more legitimately annoyed at the notion than Confucius himself. He didn't want to be raised from the dead. The paradox of Christendom, Chesterton says, remains unique in that it does promise a fullness of life, but only by an actual reversal of the fact of death. It begins with a material miracle and ends with a new hope of material order and security. It believes that life can be reconstituted because death has been defeated. A gospel that doesn't result in the defeat of death is no gospel at all. This resurrection hope makes all the difference. It's interesting, just a few days after Serene Jones' interview was published uh, last Easter Sunday, uh, Islamic suicide bombers attacked churches in Sri Lanka and over 200 were killed, many of them children, uh, in these churches that were attacked. Now, do you think those Sri Lankan Christians would be satisfied with a dead Christ, with a gospel that does not include the resurrection? Would they be satisfied with a resurrectionless version of the Christian faith? As they were cleaning up the body parts of their murdered loved ones, their murdered children in their sanctuaries. And one of the pastors uh, of one of these persecuted churches said pieces of flesh were all over the walls and floor of the sanctuary. Will those who have survived them, will they ever see their loved ones in the flesh again? Serene Jones says no. Resurrection says yes. The Gospel says yes. The Apostle Paul says yes. They will. And that's the good news. That's the hope. Those pieces of flesh that were scattered all over the sanctuary floor matter. They matter to God so much that He's going to put them all back together. If resurrection is a mere myth or a mere symbol, there is no hope. Everything is in vain. What good is anything if death is the end? What good is your obedience and your faithfulness and your sacrificing if you're going to die and that's it? There is no resurrection of the body. What is the value of joy and love in this life if they're only temporary and they're going to be snuffed out by death? What good are all your accomplishments, all your achievements, all the things you invest your life in doing? Your life's work, as it were. What good is it if death is the end? And its effect just fades away. And in asking this question, I'm asking a biblical question. This is a biblical question. It really is death that threatens everything. Death threatens the very meaning of life, the meaningfulness of life. In Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon wonders, since man and beast both die, why is it better to be a man than a beast? If the fate of men and beasts is the same, we're all going to die and return to the dust from which we came, what advantage does does man have over beast? In Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon wonders if wisdom has any value because the wise man and the fool are both going to die. What good is wisdom if it can't defeat death? If the wise man dies just like the fool and the wise man can be buried in a grave right next to the fool in his grave, what good is wisdom in this life? What good is anything in this life if death is the end? 
Death is what threatens the meaningfulness of life. It's death that threatens to render life meaningless. Therefore, the only way to save life's meaning is with resurrection. And that's what the resurrection does. The resurrection saves life's meaning. The resurrection gives us hope. It gives us triumph. It gives us victory. And therefore, it fills life with meaning and purpose and direction. Resurrection means death won't wipe everything away. The resurrection means salvation is real and comprehensive. This historical event, the resurrection of Jesus, when he becomes the firstborn from the dead, this reveals the meaning of life. This reveals the meaning of Death and life together, you could say. Christ died to reconcile all things to Himself. He rose again to restore all things to Himself. And so what is the meaning of life? We can put it this way. The meaning of life is that all of life has meaning. The meaning of life is that in Christ, all of life has meaning. If Christ is raised, all of life belongs to Him. The resurrection demands and promises the transformation of all of life. We sing the cross demands my soul, my life, my all, but the resurrection demands my soul, my life, my all as well. The resurrection promises joy and peace and life that go on for all eternity. And so the resurrection not only promises me a glorious future, it changes the way I live in the present because it connects my present to my eternity. It connects my history to my eternity. It gives my present meaning and purpose because it anchors my present to an eternal future in glory. The resurrection means redemption is cosmic. The resurrection means no good thing will be lost. See, Christ's resurrection really is the clue to the meaning of everything. It's the clue to the meaning of our destiny, creation's destiny, culture's destiny. And we need to unpack it in all these different dimensions. Because Christ is raised, we'll be raised too. Christ is the prototype or the model. He shows us where we're headed. When Christ rose from the grave, He had the same body as before, but it was transformed and glorified. And so it will be with our bodies as well. Christ's body displayed a kind of new physics. He could interact with the world in ways he could not before. His body was still physical. He makes a big point of that, that they should touch his body and see he has flesh and bone. He's not like a ghost. But his body has new physical features, new physical properties. And so he could do things in his resurrection body that our physical bodies can't do right now, like pass through walls. He could just show up in a locked room mysteriously there with his disciples. He could fly on a cloud into the heavens. On the resurrection, our bodies will participate in the physics of the world to come as well. There's a new physics and the new creation in some way. Christ's resurrection body could still eat. He has several meals after his resurrection. And in our resurrection bodies, we will eat as well. Indeed, in our resurrection bodies, we will feast at the eternal marriage supper of the Lamb. Feasting will be a huge part of eternal life. Christ's resurrection body still had scars, but the wounds were glorified. And so it will be with our wounds. In other words, in some way, your whole life history here 
carries over into the resurrection the things that make up your identity, your experiences, your sufferings, your interests, your achievements, your attainments. All of that will be glorified and purged and perfected and purified and will carry over into your resurrection life as a part of your resurrection identity. Jesus carried his scars with him from this life into his resurrection life into his resurrection body, and so we will as well. And this is so important to see because, you know, our bodies are the site of so much that happens to us. The body is the site of so much suffering and shame. So many of our insecurities in life are tied to the body. How our bodies look. Are our bodies beautiful enough, thin enough, strong enough? The body is the source of so many of our anxieties. The body drives so many of our insecurities. The body, too, is the site of so much shame. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 3. The body's nakedness is tied to Adam and Eve's sense of shame after they sin. Misusing our bodies bring shame. Or when our bodies are misused and abused by others, there is a sense of shame. We experience life-altering shame. And the body is the carrier of that shame. I mean, even in smaller kinds of ways, the body carries shame. Say, even in forms of embarrassment. You know, there's a bodily expression to them. Mark Twain said, man is the only creature who blushes and the only one who needs to. There's a sense of shame there, and it expresses itself bodily. The body is the site of shame. The body is the site of so much pain and suffering and weakness. The body bears the brunt of aging and illness. The body's weakness, which too really can become a source of shame as well. Without a resurrected body, all of those problems go unsolved. They all go unresolved. These bodily insecurities and this bodily shame and this bodily suffering, none of that ever gets addressed if there is no resurrection of the body. But this is our glorious hope, that there is a resurrection of the body. And in the resurrection body, there will be no insecurities. There will be no shame. There will be no suffering. Paul says our resurrection bodies. He says our bodies are sown in dishonor. Your body is going to be put into the ground, but your body will be raised in honor as a glorious body, a glorified body. Or turn this around. Those would be the negative aspects of bodily life, the suffering and the shame and the insecurity. But what about ways in which we use our bodies to do good things? Our bodies are vehicles through which we express our love for one another. We use our bodies to serve one another. We use our bodies to care for children. Men and women do that in different ways, but we use our bodies. You can't care for children in non-bodily ways. We use our bodies to care for one another, to give one another a shoulder to cry on, to speak words of encouragement to one another. Mother Teresa said, you want to be great? She said, pick up a broom and sweep the floor. In other words, use your body to serve others. Humble acts of bodily service is how you attain greatness in the kingdom of God. Okay, it's wonderful to hear. We use our bodies to serve one another. We know that. But what if the body did all of this serving and then never gets rewarded for it? How would that be fair or just? If there is no resurrection, your body never gets rewarded for all the bodily acts of service you've performed. 
But the hope of resurrection is that your body will be rewarded. It's only fitting that the same body that stooped to serve others sacrificially would be raised up in glory and rewarded. The reality is you are not you without your body. And unless Christ raises your body, he doesn't save you. At best, he'd be a partial savior. You'd only be partially saved. The resurrection means he is a total savior and you are totally saved. The whole you is going to be redeemed. That's what resurrection means. And that's why it's so important. But you know, our bodies are not the only thing that will be raised. Christ reconciles and restores all things. He reconciles and restores the creation itself. Romans 8 describes this. Romans 8 describes the future of creation. Paul there describes how creation was subjected to futility. It was subjected to futility by man's sin. Man was the captain of of creation, the representative of creation. Creation's fate is tied to man. And so in man's sin, the whole creation was subjected to futility. Now Romans 8 says it was subjected to futility in hope because there's that hope of redemption, that hope that creation itself will share in redemption. And so Paul in Romans 8 goes on to say creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of of corruption and brought into the glorious liberty of the children of God. He says, for we know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now, even as we groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting the redemption of our body. We await the resurrection. Creation as a whole awaits our resurrection as well. Creation shares in our futility, our groaning, our pain, our experience of the curse. But creation also awaits our liberation and glorification. And when we are finally liberated and resurrected, creation itself will be restored and resurrected right along with us. The whole creation, in other words, will participate in our glorification. When we are resurrected, creation will be restored. Creation is in us, and now we are in Christ. Creation fell in us originally and was subjected to futility and the curse of death because of our sin. But now in Christ, the new Adam, the new creation, you know, now creation will be redeemed and renewed. There will be a new creation. Creation will be redeemed. Creation will share in our resurrection. Now what's a resurrected world going to look like when heaven and earth become one? When the earth is completely heavenized? This is what creation eagerly awaits. This is why creation waits with eager expectation for our resurrection. Because then it will be fully liberated from the curse of sin and creation will share in our glory. Our glory will be creation's glory. What's that going to look like? I mean, who can say? How could the Alps get more glorious than they already are? You know, I can't wait to see what the Alps look like when they're resurrected and glorified. What will a resurrected and glorified Niagara Falls look like? I can't even wait to see what a glorified Cahaba River is going to look like. Or glorified Mount Chiha. I mean, these are the things we're going to see. Creation, as full of wonders as it is right now, is going to be glorified and perfected in ways we can't even imagine. Christ is going to take earth to heaven and He's going to bring heaven to earth. He's going to make heaven and earth one. He's going to glorify this whole creation. 
this creation, with its geography, with all the features it has now, this creation will be perfected in beauty and in order. And I think this includes animal life as well. Animals, after all, are subject to the curse that man brought into the world. Animals are certainly connected to humans. They, in Scripture, symbolize humans and they share in our fate, which means there's no reason to exclude animals from the glory of the resurrection as well. Again, there's much that's mysterious here, much we can't say, and we don't want to speculate too much. But 1 Corinthians 15 points us in this direction. Because there Paul describes different kinds of flesh in verses 37 to 39. He talks about different kinds of seed being sown in the earth, then producing different kinds of crops as God's pleased to bring them forth from the earth. And that's his analogy. He goes on, he says, likewise, there are different kinds of flesh. One kind of flesh for men, another of animals, of fish, of birds. And so it will be, Paul is saying, in the resurrection. Different kinds of animals will be raised up in different kinds of flesh. They're like different kinds of seed put into the ground that will come forth and bring forth a different kind of crop at the last day. So even as our flesh will be transformed and glorified, so will the flesh of fish and the flesh of birds and the flesh of the land-dwelling animals. The animals will share in our redemption and liberation in some mysterious way. And you know, all throughout Scripture, you see God's concern for the animals. In the flood, the animals are saved right along with the humans. In the book of Jonah, the city of Nineveh is saved not just for the sake of the people, but for the sake of the cattle. God's love embraces what we could call the lower creation. And so God's salvation does as well. But we can go even further. And here, too, there is much mystery. But it's not just that we're going to be resurrected and the the, the creation, our environment, is going to be resurrected. Culture, in some way, is going to be resurrected as well. Human work and, and our cultural products are going to share in the resurrection. Christ saves and redeems human work, human labor. Christ restores and resurrects and glorifies human culture in the end. We're not saved by our works, but our work will be saved. You know how it is on a computer. You know, you, you forget to hit the save button and then everything gets lost. How, how distressing that is. Well, Christ is not going to lose anything. He's always hitting the save button on everything we produce. And so in some way, your daily work will be woven into the fabric of the new creation. Your cultural products in some way will contribute to the culture of the new heavens and new earth, the culture of the new Jerusalem. We read about this in Isaiah 60 this morning where the kings of the earth bring their cultural treasures into the kingdom of God. And then this picture is picked up, this thread is picked up in Revelation chapter 21 where again you see the kings of the earth bringing their glory into the new Jerusalem. They're bringing the honor and glory of the nations in. Now, in some sense, you might say this happens in history as the nations are discipled, as the powers are converted, as kings are converted already. You could see how nations can make contributions to a Christian civilization. But that's very imperfect. It's very flawed. It's going to happen completely and perfectly at the last day. Why? Because Christ has reconciled All things, not just religious things or so-called spiritual things. He's reconciled all things 
And not even just human things, but creational things, cultural things. I love the way that the uh, British theologian Christopher Wright puts this. Wright um, actually lives in London, very close to the British Library, and passes by it regularly. That's what he says about it, just his, his thinking about this truth in light of the huge British Library, massive building. He says it houses the accumulated learning, wisdom, wit, and literature of multiple human civilizations and languages, and that's only a fraction of the whole world's libraries and museums. I sometimes sit and think, how many lifetimes would I need to ever absorb and enjoy the treasures of this place alone, and what will happen to all this cultural achievement, the labor of lifetimes of generations of human beings made in God's image when Christ returns, will it all simply be obliterated, extinct in an instant, lost and forgotten for all eternity? I cannot believe that is the plan of God. I don't understand how God will enable the wealth of human civilization to be redeemed and to be brought cleansed into the city of God in the new creation, but the Bible says he will. I don't imagine it will be a matter of dusty old books any more than I will be there in my dusty old body but I know I will be there in the glory of a resurrection body as the person I am and have been, but redeemed, rid of all sin and raring to go. So I believe there will be some comparable resurrection glory for all that humans have accomplished in fulfillment of the creation mandate, redeemed, but real. He says we lament the lost civilizations of past millennia, civilizations we can only partially reconstruct. But if we take Revelation 21 seriously, and I would add to that Colossians 1 and a number of other passages, if we take these texts seriously, they're not lost forever. The kings and nations who will bring their glory into the city of God. The kings and nations will bring their glory into the city of God. This promise spans all ages, all continents, and all generations in human history. He says, think of it. Think of the prospect. All human culture, language, literature, art, music, science, business, sport, technological achievement, actual and potential, all available to us, all with the poison of evil and sin sucked out of it forever, all of it glorifying God, all of it under His loving and approving smile, all of it for us to enjoy with God and indeed being enjoyed by God and all eternity for us to explore it, understand it, appreciate it, and expand it. That's the vision of the future that Scripture gives us. The new creation is not going to be a blank sheet of paper as if God takes all of human history and crumples it up and throws it in the trash can. No, the resurrection means all that is properly human, all that belongs to human life and culture, all that we produce in history as we seek to fulfill the creation mandate, the cultural mandate, all of that will be taken up by Christ and purged and perfected and then given back to us to enjoy forever. I mean, Handel's Messiah is glorious now, but what's it going to be like when it's truly glorified by Christ Himself? That's the kind of thing we have to look forward to. Jesus did not come to thin out human life but to set it free forever. As Thomas Howard says, all the dancing and feasting and processing and singing and building and sculpting and baking and merrymaking all belong to us. They were all stolen away into the service of false gods, but they will be returned to us in the end. All things will be ours. 
Christ is redeeming us. He's redeeming creation. He's redeeming culture. The work you do today, the work you do tomorrow, when you wake up Monday morning, the work you do throughout the coming week counts for eternity. Somehow you're contributing not just to life now as we know it, but you're contributing to the future New Jerusalem, the life of the world to come. We see this refrain constantly in Scripture. Psalm 90, verse 17. Moses says, God will establish the works of our hands forever. seems like everything we do, it's there one moment and, and then it fades away. It's obliterated before we know it. It doesn't seem to have any lasting effect. But Moses says, God will establish the works of our hands forever. When will He do that? Ultimately, in the resurrection, He will make our works in this life count forever. Revelation 14 says, Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Their works will follow them. Your works will follow you into the new creation. You'll bring it with you into the new world. First Corinthians 15, 58, after 57 verses of teaching on the resurrection, Paul says, abound in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain in the Lord. For 57 verses, Paul has talked about the future bodily resurrection based on Christ's past resurrection. And how does he apply that truth at the end? He says, get to work. Do your work right now. Work hard. That's Paul's conclusion. That's his application. Because present work connects to future resurrection. It's not in vain. The resurrection means it lasts. It's not going to be lost. Again, we can't fathom how God does this, how God will save our works, how He will weave our work and our cultural products, our culture making into the new Jerusalem, that glorious city to come. But we know that He will. No good thing will be lost. No good thing will be wasted. No work, no achievement, no skill, no talent. God will establish your work for all eternity. Your work is not in vain. It's going to follow you into the resurrection world. And so I'll say it again. What is the meaning of life? Simply this, that all of life has meaning. What is the meaning of life? That in Christ, all of life has meaning. All things have meaning because Christ restores and reconciles and resurrects all things. Christ has restored you to your purpose in life. Christ does not replace all things. He redeems all things. Christ is risen. And so you will be raised and creation will be raised and culture will be raised All things were created in and through and by Jesus. And all things will be redeemed in and through and by Jesus. And that's our hope. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for this glorious good news. We thank You for the resurrection of Christ Jesus. That in His death, He reconciled all things through the blood shed on the cross. And in His resurrection, He's gathering up and renewing all things in Himself that we might enjoy them in Your presence for all eternity. Father, we thank You for this glorious Gospel You've given to us. A total salvation. A salvation that lives up to the hype that even goes beyond our wildest dreams and imaginations. Father, give us grace to live these truths out right now. To work hard because we know our labor is not in vain. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.